All right. Well, Life Point, like Pastor Mark said, my name is Dane Miet. I'm the student pastor here, and it's just my joy this morning uh, that as we continue on, we get to dive into this series that we're in called Where Do You Go From Here? And so if I get everybody to stand up uh, real quick, we are going to hit our memory verse, Acts 1-8 together, uh, and then we're going to continue in our sermon for this morning. So Acts 1-8, say it with me if you can, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. Y'all go ahead and be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Acts chapter 4. Uh, We're going to read verses 32 through 37. We're going to go all the way through chapter 5 here this morning. Uh, But Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, I want us to to read it, uh, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll dive on into uh, the text for this morning. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, says this. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's go ahead and pray together. Oh, Father, again, I thank you for this time that you've given us here to gather together over your word, worshiping uh, you through song uh, and prayer and just celebrating what you've done in the lives of our graduating seniors. Lord, every good and perfect thing comes down from you. And so therefore, you always get the glory and everything that we are thankful for, Father. And I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, your word to us. Thank you for the fact that you've spoken to us. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given us. And I pray this morning, God, as we spend time in your word, I pray that you would teach us something here this morning. And if you're willing, I just ask you to pray that for yourself. Pray, God, please teach me something here this morning. And then if you could pray for me, pray that what I say would be helpful, it would be clear, uh, man, would ultimately make God look awesome. Father, we love you and we trust you. Please use this time, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Well, when I went off to college at Oklahoma State University, which I was stoked to see one of our seniors is going to, come on. I knew, that's right, yeah, we can applaud for OSU, right? Um, whatever. Um, 
I knew going off to college, the first thing on my mind that I knew I had to take care of, I had to get, was uh, I needed to find a local church in the area. Uh, that was just something that I felt God had really impressed on my heart. It was something that I felt was incredibly important. Um, and the more I think about it, uh, thinking back on that time and the reason why I even wanted to pursue that uh, was because I knew deep down, like I needed community, right? Like I needed a group of people to belong to, right? And you're leaving high school, you've just spent somewhere like four to eight years kind of building up this social group and this group of friends and this community, these people to be a part of. You kind of know your place. And then you're leaving off into college where depending on how many of your friends are going there, you may not know anybody. And so I knew going into this new environment, I was going to need a, a people group to belong to, right? And so I was going to find a local church. Um, I had decided that I was going to either join Army ROTC or I was going to join a fraternity. Uh, and for the same reasons, I wanted a group of people to connect with immediately, but I didn't just join uh, any group, right? I didn't just go out and say, I'm going to join, you know, basket weaving 101. Um, I wanted a group that was going to give me purpose, uh, a group that was going to give me a, a goal to shoot for, something that was going to have meaning. I, I wanted relationships, but I also wanted relevance. Or I wanted a people group to belong to, but I also wanted a purpose to pursue. I wanted both community and I wanted a mission, I wanted something that was going to give me meaning. And I think deep down, this is a desire that every single one of us has. And we here as a church, like we are one family, we're one community. And we see this kind of broken out into small groups. Or when we tell people to join a small group, look into a small group, it's because deep down we know that we all want community, but not just any community, right? Like you want to be a part of a team, but you don't want to be a part of the losing team, right? You want to be a part of a winning team. And so we want not only community, but we want purpose. We want meaning. We want a goal to pursue and something that was going to add value to my life. I knew that going into college. And I, like I said, I think deep down, that's a desire that every single one of us has, and I think that's true regardless of whether you're coming out of high school, whether you're in college, whether you're a young adult, whether you're into your 40s, 50s, 60s, even when you're into retirement. I think that desire for a meaningful, purposeful community is something that's deep down ingrained inside of us. Even babies, I would argue, have this, right? So my daughter, Audrey, turned one yesterday. And we got a picture of her. Yep, there she is. Look at that. I know, right? Um, but she turned one yesterday, and the interesting thing about uh, my daughter that uh, my wife Josie and I have realized is that, especially in the mornings, that we'll wake up, we'll go into the kitchen, and I'll start making coffee, and uh, Josie will start, you know, making some breakfast for her. And if she is on the ground anywhere, like, she just starts, like, whining and crying until somebody picks her up. Right? Because she realizes, hey, there's people here and they're engaging in something interesting and I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss out on what's going on in front of me. And so she has this desire even for community and for purpose, even though she probably wouldn't even vocalize it that way. Right? She can say like two words. Right? But that desire inside of us is intentional, I think. And it's because ultimately we are made in God's image. And God is in himself community with purpose. Right? He is Trinity. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is one God, not three gods. 
But there is one purpose, ultimately his glory, his exaltation, that every single tongue would declare how awesome he is. Every single knee would bow to his magnificence. He is both community and purpose and meaning. And we as image bearers of God have this same desire for both community and meaning. We want a a band of brothers or a band of sisters to be a part of. We don't want to do life alone. When life gets difficult, we want people to do it with, right? If COVID taught us anything, even for people like myself who are kind of just extreme introverts, we still found ourselves missing people, right? One or two weeks of quarantine actually ended up being a little too long. We had to be around people. And I think that's because that desire inside of us is so ingrained that we want it, we need it, we pursue it. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is that we are looking at this text. And what we are seeing in this text here is that what the Holy Spirit has, has created in the early Christians, the first century Christians, is this community. And as we read those first five, six verses this morning, I don't think anybody would read those verses and be like, that sounds terrible. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. I think rather we look at that and be like, like that is almost too good to be true. We look at that and be like, that just looks utopian. It looks like something that we all want, but we think to ourselves, like, I could never have that. And the good news this morning is that that's not true. And that's not true because God has given us community. Paul lays out in the book of Ephesians that he says that you, when you were dead and you were raised to life by Christ, he joined you to two things. Not only did he join you to himself, but he joined you to a family. That there is vertical reconciliation that goes on between you and God. You are joined to him. But not only were you joined to him, you were joined to a group. He is creating a new group of people unified around him, a community with purpose. And so the good news here this morning is that this community, this desire for a a band of brothers or sisters, a, a family to be a part of, a community to join with purpose is attainable. In fact, it's a gift from God. And so that's the good news this morning. But what we're gonna spend this morning talking about is that even though everybody can have it, not everybody gets it. Even though everybody can have it, not everybody gets it. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Is that it's there. You, you can get it if you want it. But it's also not free. It costs something. It costs two things specifically that we're going to look at here this morning. And the first thing we're going to see that it costs, if you want that kind of community, you want that band of brothers, that band of sisters, that, that family to be a part of, Number one, it's going to cost you surrender. It's going to cost you surrendering personal preferences and desires. And I think every single one of us knows, when it it comes to a team, if you've ever been a part of a, a really strong team, you know that that team only works if every single person on that team is pursuing what's in the best interest of that team. As soon as somebody on the team decides, like, I'm just out for me and mine, that team's integrity begins to fall apart. And so what we see here in this text, in this picture of this kind of utopia community, right, that we get at the very end of chapter 4, immediately after that, 
we get this kind of an odd story about this guy and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And what we see in their story is a mindset and a mentality and a heart that is incongruent with that kind of community that does not fit, that does not belong in that kind of group. And so that's what we see here, this attitude that does not belong. Let's read it here together, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 36. It says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they, they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Here's the principle there. God being second place in somebody's heart does not fit in the community that he's created. God being second place in somebody's heart does not fit in the community that he's created. This, this is where we get that from. Because if, if, if you want to have this type of community that we see in Acts, it requires surrender. It requires total surrender of your preferences and your own desires. See, I wanted us to start reading that uh, with the very last verse of chapter four because Ananias and Sapphira are meant to be a contrast to Barnabas. So you see the story of Barnabas in one verse at the end of chapter four, and you see Barnabas doing the exact same thing that Ananias and Sapphira did. Barnabas sells a plot of land, takes all the money, lays it at the apostles' feet. And then immediately afterwards, you see this story of Ananias and Sapphira selling a plot of land and deciding, you know what? We want to look impressive without actually having the heart that's in this community, without actually having a heart that loves God above anything else. We want to look like we love God. We want to look like we're on the team. We want to look like we have his desires above our own, but we don't really. At the end of the day, we want to do what we want to do. God is not number one in their lives. See, for Barnabas, 
He understood like what I own is ultimately God's. He's made me a steward of it. And so therefore I'm gonna use it in the way that best glorifies him. That doesn't mean that Barnabas had to take all of the land, sell it all, get the money and lay it all down. Peter's very clear about that. He says to Ananias and Sapphira, hey, listen, you, you didn't have to say this. You could have just given us part of the money if you wanted to. That's not the point. The point is your heart did not have God in first place. Your heart had you in first place. And Peter says this to Sapphira in Acts 5.9. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? If that sounds familiar to anybody, that just kind of context, obviously we know, right? Luke is the author of Acts, right? Acts is kind of part two to Luke's gospel. And that word test that you see Peter using with Sapphira is the same Greek root that's used whenever Jesus is tested in the wilderness. In Luke 4.12, it says, Jesus answered to Satan, he said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's the exact same Greek root he's using here. He's connecting it with an idea that is contrary to God being supreme. He's like that mindset of God not being first, it's not only wrong, it's satanic. It's satanic. And when it comes to this kind of community that we are seeking to be involved in, there's there's only two camps to fall into. It's either God is number one or Satan is number one. And that sounds kind of extreme, but if you look at the Bible, that's the picture you see. There there is no like God is on the good side and Satan's on the bad side. And there's all these people kind of in neutral territory playing Sweden. Like that's not how this works. There is only two camps to belong to. And the middle defaults to the satanic. It doesn't default to God. God must be number one. And this is what the story of Ananias and Sapphira is meant to communicate to us. There's a whole lot of questions about, does God strike people down dead nowadays? I don't know. I'm sure he could if he wanted to. But the point we see here is when it comes to this kind of community, God is the one who ultimately deserves every ounce of awe and respect that we have. That's why the, the text repeats this twice and finishes off with this verse, Acts 5, 11, when it says great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That idea of fear is this just reverential awe and respect before the God of the universe who runs everything in this world and therefore owns everything in this world and deserves every ounce of allegiance that you or I have regardless of how we feel about it. And if we want to be a part of this kind of community, it requires a thousand percent surrender to our preferences and what we think is best and what we want. Pragmatically speaking, this means that Sunday morning worship doesn't exist to just play your and my favorite songs. It doesn't. That's not the purpose of it. I was at at an all worship night with a church that I was a part of in Dallas one time. And it was a massive, massive all-worship night. And the worship pastor got up at the very start of it before anything, any songs been played, anything else at all. And he got up, and I really appreciated this, and I was blown away by it. But he gets up, and he says, hey, listen, tonight, for our worship night, we're going to be playing tons of different kinds of music. 
He's like, we're going to have reggae. We're going to have country. We're going to have hip hop. We're going to have hymns. We're going to have classical. We're going to have all these different genres of music. He's like, and now I want to I prep you guys for this because there will inevitably come about a time in our worship night where we will hit your favorite style of worship music. And consequently, we're going to hit your least favorite style of worship music. And your natural gut reaction is going to be to listen to this and be like, I want you to go back to the stuff that I really like. But he said to us, he said, I want to stop you from going that direction. Because here's the thing, worship music does not exist to just play your personal preference. When it comes to worship music of all different genres and types and backgrounds and styles and sounds, it is ultimately meant to communicate the vastness of God's glory and appeal and worship globally. Because if God is praised in Texas through country music all the time, like that's cool, that's, that's, that's a level of glory, right? But if he's praised throughout the United States, like that's a larger group of people that are all unifying and saying he is the best thing in the world. And that's pretty cool. But then, like, if he's praised in another country as well as the United States, like, that's a larger group of people. That's a more diverse group of people. And globally speaking, serving the God of the universe, the fact that he is worshipped by so many different people with different styles, with different preferences, with different languages, with different genres, and they all communally say, he is the best thing in the universe. There is nothing greater than him that shoots his glory through the roof. And that's the purpose of worship music. That's a purpose of worship music. It's not here to just meet our personal preferences and play our favorite songs. It's meant to communicate the glory of God. To talk about how incredible he is. Another practical example of this, small groups. They don't just exist to connect you and me with people we like. They don't. Why? Because there's nothing special about you or me getting together with a group of people in our living room, reading the Bible, and we're all just like, man, I like you. Like, we have have a lot in common. We get along. We all like doing this, like doing that together and whatnot. We're all going to the same neighborhoods, same school systems, all speaking the same language. Like, there's nothing special about that. Like, everybody does that. Everybody hangs out with people that they like and they get along with. What's really incredible is when you have people who are so different and so unique from one another, have so many different opinions socially, economically, politically, when it comes to hobbies, when you have all of those different types of people together in one room, all doing life together, all supporting one another, all praying for one another— And they have literally nothing in common except a love for Jesus. That's the type of community that other people on the outside will look in and be like, how in the world does that work? And that just makes our God look that much better. That's the purpose of small group. And if we want a community... 
it's going to cost us. And the first thing it's going to cost us is surrender. Surrendering our personal preferences for ultimately what God wants and what he says is best. It's not about me and what I want. It's about him and what he wants. And this is the attitude we saw in the early church in Acts 5, 29 through 32, when it says Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The first thing we have to recognize if we want meaningful, purposeful community is that we can have it. It's attainable. You can get it. I can get it. But it's not free. It costs something. And the first thing it costs is surrender. The second thing it costs is suffering. The second thing it costs is suffering. Doesn't mean that it's always going to happen, but it does mean that if we want community like what we see here in Acts, it will from time to time require us to step into places of discomfort and sometimes suffering. And we see this principle here in Acts 5, 17 through 28, where it says, hearing after the, after the apostles have been arrested for preaching the word of God, it says in Acts 5, verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors in the, of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men who you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your, with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. We then see Peter's response to Gamaliel's interjection, which we'll look at here shortly. But then one of the Pharisees there, Gamaliel, he says in verse 40, his speech persuaded them and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You see, following Jesus has obviously never been about comfort. It's never been about doing things the easy way. 
And I think all of us, as I say that, like would say, mm, yes, like absolutely, that's right. Like we know that, Dane, like that's, it, that's one-on-one theology. We're told that multiple times, like following Jesus does not mean a life of ease and comfort. In fact, Jesus said the exact opposite, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have difficulty. And so we will nod and clap to that and say, yes, absolutely. But then as soon as we have some kind of conflict in small group, somebody offends us, somebody says something we don't like, or we play a worship song that somebody doesn't like, and all of a sudden the response is like, y'all need to change that or I'm gonna leave. Y'all need to change that or I'm gonna stop giving. There's a disconnect there. Because if you believe following Jesus means that things just go the way that we want them to go, when we want them to go that way, that is absolutely contrary to what it means to follow Jesus. We have a greater purpose in him. And having this type of community requires us to lay that purpose down and to embrace discomfort, to embrace difficulty at times. This last weekend, we had a whole ton of rain come through. Um, And unfortunately, uh, I had to be out at Mineral Wells Texas at Fort Walters to do a four-day field training uh, with our army unit. And we slept outside every single night in these just individual tents. It rained every single day. Um, It was just hot and humid and miserable um, and just not a lot of fun. And in fact, at midnight, so we went Thursday, no, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, okay? And so Tuesday uh, was coming around. We were all going to leave Tuesday morning, go back to Seagaville. And, uh, and so Monday night comes around. We're packing everything up, making sure everything's done and ready to go for the next morning. And we got one more night, like, to get through, all right? And so we all go into our tents, individual tents, out in this massive field that at this point was just covered in mud. Um, and we're laying down, trying to fall asleep. And at 1230, we all get woken up to just somebody yelling at us outside to get out of your tent, put your clothes on, get your stuff and get out because there was a a severe thunderstorm that was coming through and they were kind of worried about tornadoes and things like that. Um, And so we all had to rush out at like 1230 in the morning, throw on our clothes really fast. Um, Some guys could only put on like, you know, PT shorts and uh, whatnot because we were being rushed so much. And we had to walk a mile to like this, the nearest rec center in town. And, uh, and I joke with Pastor Mark because, you know, it's like, he was the Air Force. And so I was like, you know, we didn't get to go to the Hyatt. Like, they probably would have bust you guys into. We go to this almost seemingly just abandoned rec center. Concrete floors everywhere. It's like 1 a.m. in the morning. And they say to us, like, all right, y'all just spread out. Go back to sleep. We're going to wake back up at 5 a.m. Like, What? And so literally you had guys and gals just like throw their stuff on the ground, just lay down, cold concrete, and just zonk out. And then 5 a.m. they come around yelling at us again. It's like, get up, walk another mile back to our muddied campsite, right, to pack all our stuff up and get Ben get back on a bus and go back home. But the interesting thing about that was so fascinating. It's, and the more I've, I've spent time in the military kind of context, the more this blows me away, is that not once— did somebody in that unit say, man, y'all better get me a, a bed or I'm leaving? Like nobody. Not great. Like sure, nobody was having fun. Like they were like, this, this, this is pretty miserable. Like I don't like this. But nobody was like, man, like I'm going to stop giving you my time if you don't make my life more comfortable. 
And that's simple, or we understand that because like every single one of them, they know what they signed up for, right? They understand like they are stepping into a life of discomfort sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And so they're not shocked by it. They're not surprised by it at all. Like they're told, go lay down on the concrete and fall asleep for four hours and we'll wake you back up. They're like, well, that sounds crummy, but okay, I don't have any other choice. And they just go forward. And like I said, it's because they signed up for it. They knew what they were getting into. But, but here's the fascinating thing about this. If we've read the Bible at all, our mindset should be the exact same. You know, Jesus doesn't like say, hey, listen, you follow me, you don't have a home, right? Birds of the air, they got homes. I don't have a home. You might not get to say goodbye to your family. You are embracing discomfort at this time. There's a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain that might be coming. And so if we are going to pledge our allegiance to this Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when life gets difficult. We shouldn't be surprised when we're uncomfortable. We shouldn't be surprised when things don't go the way that we want them to go. In fact, we should be shocked when they do. And we should be like, oh man, like this is awesome. Like I got a bed here. This is incredible. Because that's not the norm. The norm of what Jesus says is suffering. And if you've signed up to follow him, to give him your whole life, that's what you've signed up for. You've signed up for difficulty and pain and struggle and discomfort. And so, man, a lot of us, we say, like, I want community. I want to belong to a group of people. I want some friends. I want a, a band of brothers, a band of sisters to be a part of, like, And you can have it, but it's not free. It costs. It costs surrendering your personal preferences and it costs suffering discomfort at times. And so the natural question there is, why in the world would you want that? And we see the answer to that in this text as well. And we see the answer of it in two words. New life. New life. Acts 5, 17 through 20. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he says, and tell the people all about this new life. If we want community, we can have it, but it requires surrendering your preferences, requires suffering discomfort. But what you get is you get new life and you get to see new life take place in the, in the lives of others. You get new life and you get to see it take place in the lives of others. See this, the church is not basket weaving one-on-one. Like we have a purpose that is meaningful, that has an eternal impact. There is something far, far greater that we are going after here. And it's not free. It requires you to lay down personal preferences. If you want to be a part of that community, if you want that kind of community, you're saved by grace through faith. That's a free gift. But if you want to be a part of that community, you got to surrender your preferences. you got to embrace discomfort. But you get to be a part of new life. You get to see lives changed. That's incredible. I had a friend of mine. This is crazy. I had a friend of mine. 
who, uh, I'm back up a little bit. So I remember back in the 90s, whenever churches started using like lasers and smoke machines and things like that, right? And there was this massive, massive kind of like outroar and like uprage, like they can't do that. Like that's unholy. Like that's sacrilegious. Like you can't use smoke machines and lasers. That sounds terrible. Like yada, yada, whatever. And, uh, and I went to a church in college that used smoke machines and lasers. And I grew up super traditional, um, but, uh, but I, I wasn't really raised to, to see that as a big issue. And so like I, I, like I just knew that I loved the community at that church. I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to start seeing lives change. Like I wanted to be a part of that. I didn't want to miss out on that. And so I started going to this church. And uh, this friend of mine, we went to the same college together and she wasn't a believer. And uh, in fact, she and her friends though would go to our college church service at night on Sunday nights. Wasn't a believer, none of our friends were believers, but they would still go. And the reason they would go, get this, this is crazy. The reason they would go is that before the church service, they would spend hours getting high on multiple different substances. And then they would go to the church service because the worship service throwing all of its smoke and lasers at the, on the beginning of the service served as like such a trip for them that they would like sit in the back pew just tripping out on all this like worship stuff that was going on as they were high on, you know, multiple different things. And that's what got them in the door. And then one night, our senior pastor gets up. He shares the gospel. She trusts in Christ and she's never the same again. Like, like come on, like seriously, like, like you had a group of people at that church who recognized like, man, I might not like smoking lasers, he might not like smoking lasers, but man, if we're gonna do anything short of sin to get people in the door, to hear the gospel, to see lives changed, like, come on, let's do it. I'll embrace that discomfort. I'll surrender my preferences because seeing lives changed for the glory of God is worth it. And that's a, that's a miracle because typically here's the thing, we think to ourselves like suffering and surrender. Those sound like very negative things or off the bat. But the truth is that it's not that simple, right? It depends on your context. Because you and I, we will embrace surrender and suffering for certain things. And I've used this illustration before with our, with our students, but take Black Friday sales, right? Before you, ever, before you did everything online, you would go out to Best Buy or to Target or to Walmart. You'd stand in line for hours, the weather would be miserable. Like it'd be like 3 a.m. in the morning, sipping your cold cup of coffee as it's raining down on you, but you're thinking in your mind like, but there's a 72-inch plasma screen TV in that store that I'm gonna get 80% off on and it's worth it. And so you'll surrender your conveniences, you'll surrender your preferences, you'll embrace discomfort because of the joy set before you of this TV mounted on your wall at home. And so suffering and surrender, they're not just automatically negative things. You'll surrender to and suffer for anything that you think is worth it. And what we get to suffer for, what we get to surrender is more worth it than anything else. Because we surrender to and we suffer for getting to be a part of seeing new life take place, getting to see, be a part of seeing miracles happen. When somebody becomes a Christian, they're not just convinced of some apologetical argument that sounds good. And so all of a sudden they're like, mm, that makes sense. Never thought about that before. Like, okay, I guess I'll be a Christian. Like Pavlov's law. Okay, cool. Awesome. Let's go that direction. Like, it's not like that. 
Because the Bible doesn't portray it that way. The Bible portrays it as you were dead and what's required of you is a heart that loves Jesus more than anything else, more than your whole life, more than your friends, more than your hobbies, more than anything else in your possible life. You want him more than anything and you can't just make that happen. I can't just look at you and tell you to love him with everything inside of you. And you can't just sit there and just like struggle and try as hard as you might to make it happen. It won't work. You can't love something that you don't love. You need a new heart for that. That's a miracle. And so, man, when we get to baptize people, when we see people responding to Christ, it's not like they were just having a bad day and they needed kind of a little pick-me-up. It's their heart was dead and they just got a new heart to love things they didn't love before and to hate things they didn't hate before. I remember I became a Christian when I went to summer camp at a camp called Kinnecuck in Missouri. And I remember very profoundly that we heard the gospel one night and immediately afterwards, I trusted in Christ. That next morning I woke up and like, I wanted to get into God's word. Like I had never felt that way before in my life. My Bible just sat underneath my bed collecting dust and I did it because I felt guilty if I didn't read it. But for the first time ever, I opened up, I was like, man, I want to know what's going on. I want to know what God says to me. I went back to my traditional church, which all of my friends thought was incredibly boring, but I sat there and they said to me, hey, Dean, let's sneak out of here and let's go grab some donuts or coffee. So I was like, like guys, like, no, like, I want to know what my pastor's going to say. And they looked at me like, like What? Like, who cares what the pastor says? I was like, but I want to know. I was so thirsty. And I didn't do anything to make that happen. That was a miracle. It just happened by the power of the Holy Spirit and transformed me to love things I didn't love before and to hate things that I didn't hate before. And so we can surrender to and, and suffer for a, a, a TV at a store and do all those things. That name name your, whatever, whatever your thing is. And here's the thing. I'm not saying it's bad to buy a TV. But when you think about it, that TV is not even guaranteed. Like, like before, obviously, they, they started counting and started giving out tickets, right, and lines for Black Friday. Um, you didn't know if you were going to get it. Like you'd stand in line and your hope was that you would get it but it wasn't guaranteed. You might get in there and it'd be sold out and you're not getting a TV. Sorry, you just stay in line for nothing. It wasn't guaranteed. But what we see here, being a part of this community, seeing new life take place, guys, like it is guaranteed because who we surrender to and what we suffer for is unstoppable. Like look at Acts 5, 32. I, I love this whole, this, this, this response that Gamaliel gives in Acts 5, verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Peter and the apostles saying, hey, we're not going to stop doing uh, what we're doing. We have to obey God rather than human beings. In verse 34, it says, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied around him and he was killed and all of his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all of his followers were scattered. 
Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. There's loads of things that we'll surrender to and we'll suffer for. Kids' sports schedules, we'll surrender to that. $10 cups of coffee, we'll surrender to that. All right, Black Friday deals, like we'll surrender to that. But none of those things are guaranteed to lead to a life being changed. None of them are guaranteed. And this fact brings the Jesus follower great joy as they think about the fact that they are on a mission that is unstoppable. After Peter and the other apostles were released from being beaten and flogged, it says that they rejoiced. Acts 5, 41 through 42, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. See, we're about to step into a vision, and Pastor Mark reminded us of that this morning, where we are seeking to to reach more people with new life by launching a second campus somewhere north of our current location, a little to no debt at all. And what we are seeking to do is to glorify God, is to follow him in what he's called us to do, making disciples of all nations, every tribe, tongue, nation, teaching them to obey all that I've, that Jesus has commanded us, knowing that he will be with us no matter what. Like that's a, that's a, I don't know of another vision that you want to be a part of. Like that is guaranteed to make an eternal impact. Now here's the thing, and Y'all probably know this too. That's, that is about 18 to 36 months out. All right, we've said that. 18, 36 months out. So the question might be, okay, well then like, what do I do now, right? I see 18, 36 months out, year and a half, three years. What about now? What about right now? What about going out these doors? What difference does this make in my life? And y'all probably know what I'm going here, but like, I would encourage you, like, if you're not part of a small group, join a small group. And here with me, Because I know when it comes to small groups, small groups are far from perfect. And everybody's got their favorite kind of like, this was my awful story from a small group, right? We all have that, it's okay. The reason I say that is this, the reason I point us towards small groups is this. Because in preparation for this vision that we're stepping into 18, 36 months out, when 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 the military decides to launch a massive operation, what they don't do is they don't go to the general of the troops and they don't say, hey, you just go out there and just do everything that you're supposed to do and this will be the successful completion of our, of our mission. They don't do that. That's not the general's job even. See, the general's job is to communicate with the troops and equip the troops and to support the troops and what they are called to go out. Because all of them, what they do is they go out in these small teams and these small units and they start conducting operations in line with that ultimate mission, ultimate purpose that they've been given. And here's the thing about those small teams. They're messy and there's people on those teams initially they may not even like each other. 
And they come from different countries and different languages and different preferences and and different desires, but they're joined together as one small little team to be a part of this large mission. And it might be really rough initially, but the general and the officers below him seek to equip these small teams and give them the resources they need and to guide them and to counsel them and to give them wisdom and decisions they have to make. And as time goes on, this small team begins to be closely knit together because they suffer through some things together and they fight through some things together. But as they spend more and more time with each other, they start learning like I can depend on this person that I didn't even know two months ago. I can start trusting this person. And when difficulty strikes and when catastrophe strikes, they know I've got people here with me. And that's the the cool thing about this is because the military has this way of bringing in so diverse groups of people, but they're joined around one purpose, right? The, 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 The purposes of the American military. But as, and as time goes on and they rub up against each other and they butt heads and they get frustrated, they learn to trust one another. They learn that they're there for one another. They learn that when difficulty and catastrophe strikes, when life gets really, really hard, they're not alone. And as that small little team, they are launched out to pursue the vision of their entire unit. And that's a picture of what small groups is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a group of people that, man, you might not even like each other initially, but as you spend time with each other, that's how community is formed. That's how bonds grow stronger. That's how you grow as a follower of Jesus. The fascinating thing, as 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 years go by and, and, and read more and more of the Bible and, and, Paul, and figure out Paul's theology and letters and, and everything like that. We here, I feel like in, a, in American evangelicalism, we have this, this habit of defining spiritual maturity by like how many days of the week did you get in the word? Right? Did you read your Bible today? And if you read it like seven out of seven, like man, like you're awesome. Right? If you read it five out of seven, like you're pretty awesome. Right? We ask, man, how many times did you pray this week? Do you keep a journal? Are you memorizing verses? Are you doing those are the kind of check blocks that we use a lot of times to determine if you're spiritually mature or not. We might not even vocalize it that way, but that's how we think about it, right? Because when the days go by and you don't get in God's word, right? Or you don't memorize this verse, or you don't really pray, you're like, ah, you go to that group, or you go to that group of people, that conversation comes up, you're like, you're kind of filled with shame. You're just like, ah, I know, like I should get in the word, but like I haven't really, you know. And so you're gauging your spiritual maturity based off of how many times you're in the word every single week. And don't get me wrong, we should be in God's word. We need his word. His word is life to us. We need it. But as I read more and more of Paul's theology in the New Testament, you know what Paul seems to go back to over and over and over and over and over again when it comes to spiritual maturity is how do you treat people you don't like? How do you treat people you don't like? People you don't get along with? How do you work together? How well do you work together? Do you show love to those who have offended you? Do you forgive quickly? Or do you hold grudges? Don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. But over and over again, that's the pattern that I see Paul emphasizing more and more and more is do you love one another? And even Jesus himself said, they'll know you're my disciples 
by the way you love one another. If we want community, it's free. You can have it. But it costs. It costs surrendering your preferences and it costs suffering discomfort sometimes. As we close out here this morning, there's a couple questions I wanted to throw out for us. They'll be on the screen. You can, you can see them. But the first question is this. You just kind of think about and process, whether by yourself or in a small group or with your family. What, what aspects, number one, what aspects or preferences in your life do you struggle to surrender to Christ? We all have them. There's no shame here. We all have them. But identify, I mean, what am I holding on to tightly, right? Like, what's that sacred cow that I just feel can't be sacrificed, right? When the new kind of phase of worship music kind of came on the scene, right? And it was more like guitars and pianos and drums and stuff like that, which um, is awesome. But there was this whole group of people that was like, but what about the organ, right? Right, the great organ, right? And this is not a knock on organs. Organs are great. But there were so many people that the organ was not just a musical instrument. It wasn't just a way to worship God. It was this sacred cow that you cannot sacrifice, but nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not sacrifice the organ. Doesn't say it. I've looked. I spent five years looking. Paid a lot of money for that information. So that's free. There you go. What aspects of your preferences in your life do you struggle to surrender to Christ? We all have them. Number two, are you more surprised when you experience suffering or discomfort in life or when you don't? And why? Are you more surprised when you experience it or when you don't? And Why? Yeah, there's no shame here, but I do think it's important to think about this. Man, is my head believing something that my heart really hasn't grabbed onto? And if that's the case, we go to God, be like, God, there's a disconnect here, and I, I need that information. As PG says, all right, to drop from my head to my heart, I, I need to actually believe that in my bones. Which one are you more surprised by? And then lastly, what's your story of life change? And that one might kind of seem a little left out, out, out left field. Uh, what's your story of life change? And I, I brought that question up for this reason, because every single one of us, I think if we think back to our story of, man, how did Jesus change us? How did we come to trust in him? What did that process look like? I would almost guarantee every single person, you can say that you know Christ right now because somebody else somewhere surrendered a preference or stepped into discomfort. And one of the best ways that we can do that ourselves for others, be a part of that new life and other people, is to, man, just share the story about what Jesus has done in us, the new life we've experienced. Like I guess that might require suffering. It might require surrendering. But that's new life. I think deep down, all of us want that community. We want a band of brothers. We want a band of sisters. We want people we can rely on, people we can call at 2 a.m. in the morning, people we can lean on when life gets really difficult. And the, the blessing, the gift that the Holy Spirit gives us is that, man, you, you can have that. You can. But it's not necessarily going to be easy. It's going to require you to sacrifice some preferences. It's going to require you to step into some discomfort, but we don't do that for some TV or something that might be worth it down the road. We do that for an unstoppable purpose that will leave an eternal impact for our God who will save anybody for his glory and for our good. Let's go ahead and pray together.
And Father, I thank you so much that, uh, that man, you, you, when you saved us, you not, only, uh, you not only joined us to yourself, but, man, you joined us to a family. And I pray, Lord, that, uh, that as we seek to, to follow you, Lord, I pray that our interactions with one another, man, would reflect that. That you would be glorified in how we engage with one another, how we speak to one another. You would be glorified by our, our quickness to forgive. By, by our resistance to holding grudges. I pray that you would be exalted in that, Father. As we're stepping into this vision, Lord, of, of launching a second campus somewhere north of our location, Father, let me just ask, I ask that you would bless that. Our heart's desire is to see more people come to know and love and follow you for your glory. I pray, God, that you would bless that, that your spirit would fill our small groups, that your, your spirit would send our small groups out into the neighborhoods that they're in to extend kindness and love to our neighbors, the same kindness and love you showed us while we were your enemies. I pray, Father, that you would move in this mighty way. If there's someone in here who's not a part of a small group, man, I pray they would write that on a connections card, drop it in the black box so we can see that and we can get them connected to a small group. I pray that you would be glorified in our interactions with one another, Lord. Because your glory is ultimately what's best for us to pursue. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.